You are listening to sermon audio from Red Tree Church. For more information about our church or to find more sermon audio, visit redtreechurch.com. What a gift it is to gather. God, our prayer is that you would reveal yourself to us this morning, God, that you would show us your glory, that we would be able to see you for who you are. God, so often in our hearts, we try to manufacture an idea of who we think you are, God, but we pray that you would strip all of that away this morning, God, and from your word that you would just show us clearly who you have revealed yourself to be, that we would see you in splendor and holiness and majesty, and that it would woo us, that it would change us for your glory. God, please do that work in us. If that's not what this morning is about, then we are wasting our time. God, please show us your glory this morning. We love you, God. We thank you. We thank you for who you are. We thank you for what you've done. We thank you for what you're doing in our midst. And we give you all praise because you are worthy. We pray in Christ's name. Amen. Thanks, guys. Well, good morning, Red Tree Church. It gives me a lot of joy to be able to say that this morning. Um, I just have to say that first. It's a joy uh, to be with you. This is, a, this is an absolute uh, gift for me uh, this morning um, because I've missed you guys. Uh, I, I certainly love to get to be a part of the work that God is doing in Mumbai to glorify his name there, and he is doing a lot of work. Uh, but I miss getting to be a part of this work here in St. Louis as he is moving. And so this morning is, is just a gift uh, that I intend to enjoy. I don't know what I'm going to say, but uh, I'm going to enjoy it while I do. And so, so Sam, Sam actually uh, called me. We were uh, talking last week, and he asked me if I would preach uh, this morning. And just to be perfectly honest, I, I had to stop and think about that because uh, I'm, I'm scheduled already to preach four times in four weeks while we're home uh, here in St. Louis uh, at some of our partner churches and things like that. And, and, and so I had to stop and, and then I just thought, no, I can't, I can't miss an opportunity to be with Red Tree family. This, this is just too good. And so uh, I'm preaching five times in four weeks. And so no rest for the weary, as they say. Uh, but here we go. You guys ready to get after it? All right, if you have a Bible, let's grab that and turn to Mark chapter 12. We will be uh, in Mark 12 because we're continuing this series in the gospel of Mark. If you've, uh, if you've been here um, for that series, man, I, I, I hope that's been a blessing for you guys. I, I can just tell you that on the other side of the world, your brothers and sisters in Mumbai, India have been immeasurably blessed by our time uh, in the gospel of Mark. And can I just say this as well? Uh, another aspect of blessing for us is that we know we're going through the same text with you guys every weekend. That is just another example of how uh, being a part of something larger than just our individual church, right? This family of churches, it, it's a gift to know that we're studying the same thing. God's stirring in the same type of ways uh, with our brothers and sisters here in St. Louis. And so I I hope that's been and is a blessing for you as well. 
so Mark 12, 28, 34 is what we'll look at specifically this morning. And, you know, I'm just going to do my thing. Let's just actually wait on that. And um, let's, l- l- let me reset the scene for us. I'm, I'm sure that your pastors here have been doing this every week, but I think it's good. It would be helpful for us to just sort of make sure that we're all on the same page this morning as we find ourselves in Mark chapter 12. This is the final week of Jesus' public ministry. You'll remember that uh, Jesus has just entered uh, the city of Jerusalem on what we call now Palm Sunday, and He's entered to much fanfare, right? I use that term specifically, fanfare, because the people who are lining the streets for His arrival were His fans for sure, but not necessarily his followers, right? Their cries of Hosanna would turn to calls for his crucifixion by week's end. But nonetheless, that's how Jesus entered the city that day. And the first thing that he did when he got to Jerusalem was he went to the temple where he witnessed people misusing what God had provided for worship. See, the area that was reserved for the Gentiles to come around the temple and and pray and witness the things of God, that area had been overtaken by money changers and people selling animals for sacrifices. It was a blatant misuse of what God had provided. Right? What he had intended for his glory, what he had intended for worship of him, had been turned inward towards selfish gain. Isn't that a common theme in our lives? Don't we do that? Right? These things that God gives us to be able to glorify his name and worship him, we tend to turn those things in and terminate them on ourselves. This was happening. We have a physical picture of this happening in the temple. And Jesus, of course, was having none of that. So he, he became angry. He, he started turning over tables and kicking over chairs and he drove these profiteers out of the temple. In fact, what Jesus was doing in that moment was he was asserting his authority. We know that Jesus is Lord of the temple and he was simply asserting his authority in that moment and the religious leaders didn't like it. Right? They, 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 they felt threatened by Jesus. They were scared that they would lose control, that they'd lose power. And so instead of recognizing Jesus' authority, they set themselves against him and plotted to destroy him. Now what that did is set into motion this series of interactions between the religious leaders and Jesus. Mark lays out sort of these scenes where, where, where they're trying to trap Jesus and expose him for the, for the heretic, for the fraud that they think he is. And so first, they come and they question Jesus' authority. Right, This comes from the Sanhedrin, sort of the ruling body that's made up of the chief priests and the scribes and the elders. And they say, in essence, who do you think you are? That's, that's their question. Who do you think you are to come in and do these things? And I love Jesus' answer. It's vintage Jesus because he turns it back on them and essentially asks them a question. He says, I'll tell you what, I will answer that question if you can tell me if the baptism of John was from heaven or from man. Now, we don't have a lot of time to get into the nuance of this here, but suffice it to say that they couldn't answer that question because either answer would make them look foolish, right? Jesus being Jesus. 
And then because they refused to open their mouths and make themselves look foolish, Jesus, Jesus went ahead and made them look foolish anyway by telling the parable of the tenants, which is just Jesus revealing essentially Israel's rejection of God's messengers, the prophets, throughout history, and now their dismissal of God's Son, while again foretelling that He will be put to death by these religious leaders. And the point of all of that is that what God has provided to Israel, to these religious leaders who are supposed to be stewarding the gifts of God, that those things will be taken away from them and they'll be given to others, which of course is just a foreshadowing of the fact that the gospel would soon spread to the Gentiles. That's the first scene. Now, the next scene is the religious leaders questioning Jesus about paying taxes, which is essentially a a political test. Here again, they were trying to trap Jesus, and they asked him, should we pay taxes to Caesar, or should we not? Which is kind of a tricky question, if you look at that, because if Jesus says, yeah, we should absolutely pay taxes to Caesar, then Jesus' followers might have a problem with that, because the Roman tax code was beyond oppressive to the Jewish people. You, you actually had poor Jewish people who were starving to death because of this tax system, so that wouldn't be a great response. And on the other hand, if he says, no, we shouldn't pay taxes, then they really have Jesus, because Here they are in Jerusalem, right? The the seat of Roman power in the Jewish world. And this would give the religious leaders the opportunity and the claim to turn Jesus over to the Roman authorities. So they think they have Jesus trapped on this one, but this is Jesus. You don't ever have him trapped. He says, I'll tell you what, why don't you bring me uh, a coin? They bring a denarius to him. And he says to them, it's Caesar's image on that coin. You're participating in the system that, that, that he has set up. And so you have to play by the rules of that system that you're participating in. And then he says this great line, you need to render unto Caesar what is Caesar's and render unto God what is God's. It's a brilliant answer. It's brilliant because it answers the question, but it brings the conversation back to the heart and the motive of the people asking the question. Jesus is pressing on the heart of his accusers by forcing them to think about what they are rendering to God. That's brilliant. It's brilliant. Right, so, so that's two of the interactions. You would think at some point they would stop asking him questions, and they do eventually at the end of our text, but not yet. Next, they question Jesus about the resurrection. This comes from the Sadducees, and it's essentially a theological test where they present this like crazy hypothetical situation about marriage and remarriages and the resurrection, and Jesus responds to them by saying, look, not only are you missing the point of what you're referencing that Moses wrote, but you aren't recognizing the power of God and the fact that He will do things that you don't even have categories for. He will do things that you haven't even imagined he can do that's essentially his answer which quiets them on that subject and then we we have this final scene that mark details for us in verses 28 through 34 now this is more of a it's more of a legal test Right, And it has a little bit of a different flavor than the other ones. It doesn't seem as contentious as the other ones. But I think it reveals one of the greatest dangers for us. And I'll explain that in just a moment. But first, let's read this together. 
This is verse 28 through verse 34. This is what Mark records. One of the scribes came up and heard them disputing with one another and seeing that he answered them well, he asked him, which commandment is the most important of all? Jesus answered, the most important is hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. And you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind and with all your strength. The second is this. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. There is no other commandment greater than these. The scribe said to him, you are right, teacher. You have truly said that he is one and there is no other besides him. And to love him with all the heart and with all the understanding and with all the strength and to love one's neighbor as one's self is much more, much more than all whole burnt offerings and sacrifices. And when Jesus saw that he answered wisely, he said to him, now listen, you are not far from the kingdom of God. Jesus responds, you are not far. From the kingdom of God. And after that, no one dared to ask him any more questions. This is the word of the Lord. I'm going to pray again because we need God's help. So bear with me as I pray. Father, thank you again that we can have the privilege of studying your word. We pray that you would illuminate the text. That you would... um, That you would draw us into the heart of the gospel through this text, God. Keep me from error. And God, would you just communicate directly to our hearts what you would have us know this morning, that it would transform us. It would make its way and take deep root in our heart this morning. God, we pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Okay. Um, is, is everybody familiar with the phrase, uh, close only counts in horseshoes and hand grenades? You familiar with that? So I... I uh, um, I used to hear that phrase a lot when I was growing up, and to be honest, I didn't really understand what that meant as a kid. No idea what that meant. I mean, I I grew up in the suburbs. I actually went to school here, right? I grew up in the suburbs, and and so I had limited exposure to horseshoes growing up. It's not much of a suburban backyard. We were more of a lawn dart kind of family, right? It's a great exercise in in trusting the sovereignty of God, lawn darts. But I didn't have a lot of exposure to horseshoes. And suffice it to say, I had zero exposure as a child to hand grenades, right? Kind of an unwritten family rule. You know, you don't play with hand grenades. Might actually be safer than lawn darts. But nonetheless, um, I didn't really understand that phrase growing up. But as I got older, I understood. I, I, I got it. It simply means that you get points... If you're close to the stake when you're throwing horseshoes, right? So close counts. You get points for that. And there's a certain, I still haven't thrown a hand grenade to this day, but I think theoretically there's a certain margin of error that you can operate within when throwing a hand grenade. You sort of just have to get close to your target. But according to Jesus, in this text, close does not count when it comes to salvation. Close doesn't count when it comes to the kingdom of God. That's essentially what Jesus is saying to this scribe. And I believe, listen now, it is a beyond a timely word for the modern evangelical, especially American church. 
timely word. Because this is a context where we have the ability to experience a whole bunch of spiritual things and to know a lot of information and even agree with a bunch of things that are actually true. But does that mean that you're in? Listen to what Jesus says to this scribe. You are not far from the kingdom of God. You're not far from the kingdom of God. He's essentially saying, look, you're close. (laughs) You're close, but you're not in. Now, Mark doesn't tell us how this man reacts to what Jesus says. We we, we don't know how he reacts, but we, we have a record of how other people reacted to Jesus when he said similar things. You might remember just a little bit earlier in Mark chapter 10, Jesus was asked another legal question. This this rich young guy comes up to Jesus and he asks, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus says, well, you know the commandments. You're familiar with the law. The man says, yes, I am. In fact, I've kept the law. Translation, I, I'm, I mean, on the whole, I'm not perfect, but I'm on the whole a law keeper. But that hasn't done it, Jesus. I'm not in. I want to know, how do I have eternal life? Jesus responds and he says, well, that's because you lack one thing. You sell everything you own and you need to follow me. Now, we know how that guy reacted. The Gospels record that he was sorrowful, despondent, right? He was disheartened and he walked away from Jesus. Why? Because it was too much. It's just, it was too big of an ask. He, he loved the things in his life, commitments, relationships, stuff, money, retirement accounts, whatever. He loved that stuff more than Jesus. Now that one, I think we can look at and, and we see the guy's response. I feel like we can, we, we, we can get our arms around the principle that's, that's there. Okay, Jesus is better, right? That's the principle. I need to see everything in my life as subordinate to Jesus Christ. Because following him is better. Being with him is better. Everything else comes in a distant second. And so I need to lay it all down and chase after him. Okay, got, got it. I get that one. But this interaction with, with the scribes seems a little bit more, I don't know, squishy for lack of a better word. Right? It's a little harder to get your, get your hands around. We don't know how the man responds to Jesus. But because of his position as a scribe and because of the wisdom that he displayed in his previous answer to Jesus, you, you have to assume that he thought he was in, Right? I mean, you have to assume he thought he was in. I could imagine this guy is is sitting there like, yeah, Jesus, you're nailing it, you're tracking. Jesus says this, and he's like, wait, what? I'm sorry, did you say not far? Did you say not far from the kingdom? I would guess that's probably his response, but we just don't know. But what we can do is use the principles in this interaction to ask some serious questions. Like this one. How many people sitting in churches week in and week out who know the Bible inside and out, who have experienced spiritual things for much of their lives, how many of those people think they're in, but they're not in? 
How many people would Jesus look at today and say, you're so close, but you're not in? That's the issue I want for us to consider this morning. Because that's the tension we see in this text. And if all of this is true, <laughs> right? If everything that we just sung about is true, if the gospel's true, if this book is true, then there's no other issue that's more important than this issue. What if you're close, but you're not in? That's what I want to talk about this morning. And, and so to get there, let's back up and see if we can't unpack this by by thinking about some of the details of the conversation. Okay? This scribe, he sees Jesus interacting with the other religious leaders and he recognizes something in Jesus. There's something there. There's something that's compelling. Mark says that the scribe noticed that Jesus was answering questions well. And so he walks up and he asks Jesus this question. Now, you know this text. You've probably studied this text if you've been in church for any length of time several times. But listen, the question that this guy asked Jesus is not a, a crazy question. It's a very common question in this culture. He just says, look, which commandment is the most important of all? And Jesus gives a standard answer in Jewish culture. His answer would not have taken a single person off guard as they heard it because he quotes the Shema from Deuteronomy chapter 6. Right? That's all he does here. He says, here's the Shema. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your might. If you were Jewish, you would hear that and you'd be like, yep, that's right. Because it's the Shema. That's like their John 3.16. This was the passage if you were Jewish. Right? If you were to go to like a chariot race back in the day or whatever kind of sport they played, there would be the guy in the front row with the crazy clown wig and he'd have the Shema poster right there in front of the chariot race. It's like they're John 3.16. They all knew it. Then Jesus, because he's awesome, throws in a second commandment just for good measure. This one is also well known. It's from Leviticus 19.18. He says, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. Another passage that this scribe and all the hearers would have been intimately familiar with. They would have heard that and been like, absolutely, that's right. None of Jesus' answer would have been confusing or controversial or even surprised anyone, which is why the scribe responds the way that he does. He says, you're right. Jesus, you're right. God is one and he's the only one and to love him is everything and to love your neighbor is most important. Here's what's interesting. And this gives us a window into the scribe's maturity. Listen now, maturity. And his understanding of the things of God. He takes it a step further. And Jesus commends him for it. He says, to love God and to love your neighbor as yourself is more important, Jesus, than even burnt offerings and sacrifices. Now, now that's a pretty big statement for a scribe. 
You see, scribes were teachers of the law. They worked with the Sanhedrin overseeing the temple and all of the sacrifices that would happen, which makes this statement pretty profound. It means that there was some maturity in him to recognize a principle that God taught pervasively throughout the Old Testament. I mean, this is Hosea 6.6, right? For I desire steadfast love and not sacrifice the knowledge of God rather than burnt offerings. This is Psalm 51, 16 and 17. For you will not delight in sacrifice or I would give it. You, You will not be pleased with a burnt offering. The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart. O God, you will not despise. All throughout the Old Testament, God taught this pervasively. This was a a principle that he communicated to his people. That it's about the heart. It's about right motivation. It's not about what you do externally with regard to sacrifices. It's about the condition of your heart. You don't just go through religious motions. No, it's about what's going on in here. So this statement from the scribe is actually a big deal. This guy understands a lot about the heart of God. And Jesus acknowledges it. He he acknowledges that this guy believes the right things, that he knows the right things, and yet, get this now, and yet Jesus still says, you're close, but you're not in. You're not there. I really think this should cause us to stop and consider some things. I mean, in a culture of easy beliefism, where we can so easily confess Christ with our lips and not with our lives, this interaction should cause us to evaluate what we believe and what belief looks like, how we believe it. Let me see if I can repackage this for us quickly, just sort of... Take a look at another angle to make sure that we're seeing it clearly. Think about this man and what he believed. Because the list of what this guy believes is really significant. At first, he believed that God exists and that there's only one of them. Right? There's one God. And he believed that we're supposed to love this God. That we're supposed to have intimacy with this God. And he understood that we're called to love him, not just in pieces of our lives, but with our entire person. With everything that we are, we're supposed to love God. And he believed that because of that love with God, we're then supposed to love other people around us. And beyond that, that that love for other people requires sacrifice. We should love others like we love ourselves. He understood the importance of a heart of worship, that it's not about rituals. He got the fact that worship is fueled by love. He knew that it's possible to look religious on the outside and not be close to God. And we know that he had a favorable view of Jesus. He admired him. It's a lot of things. So he had a, he had a basic theistic worldview. He believed the Bible's true. He believed it's authoritative, that it's God's word. He clearly embraced morality. He understood that religion is more than ritual. And he would have grown up in a covenant community of the people of God. Is that not an extraordinary amount of right belief, of right understanding? Absolutely it is. Absolutely. And yet, he's close. 
He's close to the kingdom, but he's not in. Church, this begs the question, in our context, how many people are close, but not in? How many people are close, so close, but you're not in? Close only counts in horseshoes and hand grenades. And then I think it begs a deeper question. If this guy is close, but not in, what's missing? If this is true, if he's not far from the kingdom, this is what Jesus is saying. Right? You believe a lot of things. You understand so much you're not far from the kingdom of God. But you're not in because something's missing. So what's missing? Well, here's where things get really interesting. Okay? Jesus tells us what's missing in the next section of text. Now, this is delicate, okay, because this is Sam's text next weekend. Sam can get possessive with regard to his text. And so I need to be really careful here. I'm not going to be here next week. I'm preaching somewhere else, so I guess it doesn't matter. But how about this? Let's just, let's just do a quick preview of next weekend. Is that fair? So that we can just answer our question, right? What's missing? Well, yeah, that's the answer, but let's talk about it nuanced, right? <laughs> What's missing? Look at what happens next, okay? And, and you, I can just explain it. We, we don't necessarily have to read it, but he, here, here's the interaction. Jesus goes to the temple, and he begins teaching. And here's what he teaches. It's actually him referencing Psalm 110. It's a Psalm of David. Now, this is important because all the Jews, Jesus' audience, would have known that the Messiah would be a son of David, that he would have come through the line of King David. So you might be familiar with Psalm 110. It starts like this. David begins by saying, The Lord says to my Lord, Sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. That's verse 1 of Psalm 110. So David is saying, The Lord God said to the Lord Christ, right? both capital L's, if you look at the text. That's what David's saying. Jesus quotes that, teaches from that. Why? Why why, why would he do that right after this? What's his point? Well, he's essentially asking, now get this, he's essentially asking the people, who do you think the Lord is? Right after quoting these two unbelievable commandments, right? who do you think the Lord is? How can David's son also be David's Lord? How can the Messiah, the descendant of David, also be his Lord? This is profound. When you add it up and look at it in context, here Jesus is affirming the Shema. Here, O Israel, the Lord, our God, the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord, your God, with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your might. And then, immediately after, he presses the people on this issue. So, who's the Lord? That's what he's doing. Who, who's the Lord? Who do you believe the Lord to be? In other words, what Jesus is doing is he's putting himself as the subject of Israel's most important confession of faith. So, what's missing for this scribe? Get this now. Here's the answer. Craig already said it. It's not that he doesn't love God. It's that he doesn't know who the true God is in Jesus. That's what's happening. It's not that he doesn't love God. 
It's that he doesn't know who the true God is in Jesus. God's standing right in front of him. Jesus is radically reorienting the most sacred of all texts to the Jews around himself. He's saying, to love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength means that you love me with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength. And until you believe that and embrace that and submit yourself to that, listen now, submit your whole person to that, you're close, but you're not in. You can do all the law keeping you want, but it's about faith in the person and work of Jesus Christ because he's the only way in. See, everything hinges on what you do with Jesus. Everything. The fact that he claimed to be the Messiah, the Son of God, the way, the truth, and the life. The only one who can reconcile us to God. The only one who can make things right and make things whole. It has everything to do with what you believe about Him and what that belief looks like. It's the reason that I make such a big deal about the word submission for us in this context, about bringing everything under the Lordship, the rule, the authority of Jesus Christ. That's vitally important in this context because this is still a context where claiming allegiance to Jesus just doesn't cost you that much. Just doesn't on the whole. There might be some examples, but it doesn't on the whole. Now that seems to be changing, right? As biblical Christianity becomes more marginalized in a post-Christian culture, it will cost true believers more and more over time, but we're not really there yet, right? I'm walking with two men right now, a Hindu named Puneet and a Muslim named Mazar, both of whom because they're Christians in an exclusively non-Christian family, right? One's Hindu, one's a Muslim, are being persecuted, not just in their communities, but by their families. And I mean persecuted. One thing we don't look at when we look at Punit and Mazar is say, I wonder if they're really a Christian or not. Man, their life just drips with fruit of the gospel. The Spirit, as Peter wrote, the Spirit of God is like resting upon them as they suffer daily for the gospel. It's just a little different in our context. So especially in this context, I think what we then do, because I'm not saying, well, what are you saying, Jeff? We should pick up and move to a context where we'll be persecuted for our faith. Well, maybe you should definitely be open to it, but probably not. Here's how I think we steward this then in our context is we ask ourselves real hard questions and we actually care about what the real hard answers are. Questions like, have I submitted my entire life under the lordship of Jesus Christ or am I holding things back? That's a great question. Is he the Lord? Jesus is asking the people here, who do you think the Lord is? Is he the Lord that I'm seeking to love with all my heart, soul, mind, and strength, or am I pursuing something else, anything else as Lord? Intellectualism, intellectualism, worship experiences, some form of law-keeping, whatever. Here's what's interesting about both of the legal interactions that Jesus has with the rich young ruler and with this scribe. And both interactions... Jesus puts a spotlight on the fact that law-keeping will never, ever, ever save you. 
ever. In both of those examples, these guys' worlds seem to revolve around law-keeping. And in both cases, Jesus is making the point that keeping the law does not lead to salvation. Salvation comes through the exercise of faith in response to the invitation, follow me. That's it. Say, yeah, you're doing all these things, but follow me. Now listen, that's incredibly good news for us where there's humility. It's incredibly good news for us where there's humility, where there's a softness of your heart that's been granted by the Lord. You see this as incredible news that salvation is by grace and through faith, that Jesus Christ has done everything necessary for you to be saved, to be reconciled to God. That's incredible news where there's humility and you have eyes to see the truth. But listen now, where there's pride. This message will always find opposition in us. Where there's pride, this will always be met with opposition because the pride in you still screams, I got this. I can save myself. I can make this right. I can fix it. I can do what's required of me. No, you can't. It's impossible. Only Jesus can fix what is broken in you and me. And no amount of law keeping can reconcile us to God. No amount of good works will ever be enough to tip the scales in our favor. It's impossible. You can never enter the kingdom by law keeping because you can never enter, enter the kingdom on your own merit. The standard for being included in the kingdom of God is perfection. And only Jesus measures up to that standard. Here's the good news this morning. Because of what Christ has accomplished, Jesus can call you into himself and his merit can be credited to you. Because of his work, he can now call you into himself. Follow me. And his merit can be credited to you. Matthew 5, 17. Jesus saying... Do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. Romans 10.4 For Christ is the end of the law for righteousness to everyone who believes. Can I tell you the great irony of, of this passage, this interaction with the scribe? The scribe knows that the answer is to love the Lord and to love your neighbor. He knows that's the answer. But he's incapable of doing it. That's the great irony here. He knows the, the right answer. But he's incapable of doing it. No one loves the Lord and their neighbor perfectly. No one does that fully. Except Jesus. Jesus loved the Father with his whole heart, with all of his mind, with all of his strength, with every fiber of his being. He loved his Father and Jesus loved everyone perfectly to the exact measure of the law. He's the only one. Here's the tragedy of this interaction. This scribe knew the right things to do, but didn't trust the only one who could make him right. See that? He knew the right things to do, but he didn't recognize and trust the only one who could make him right. 
And isn't that true of so many in our church culture? We know what we're supposed to do. We know the right answers, but it's only Jesus that can make us right. It's only when we lay everything down and declare Him Lord of our lives that we're made right in Him. Many of you are familiar with Matthew chapter 7, verses 21 through 23. If you have been at Red Tree for any length of time, you know that this is the text I used to quote often. Um, It paints a picture of Jesus at the end, the day of judgment. And Jesus says this. He says, not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven. This is at the end of all things now. People showing up to Jesus saying, hey, we're, we're here. Jesus says, not everybody who says, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven. But the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. Now, we'll talk in just a moment about what that is. But he goes on. He says, on that day, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name, cast out demons in your name, do many mighty works in your name? And then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. But Jesus says, the only one who enters the kingdom of heaven is the one who does the will of my Father. John 6.40 For this is the will of my Father that everyone who looks on the Son and believes in Him should have eternal life and I will raise Him up on the last day. What's the will of the Father? Believe in the Son. That's clear. It's clear. Very much like a text just before that in John chapter 6, verses 28 and 29, right? They asked Jesus, what, what must we do to be doing the works of God, Jesus? And Jesus answered them and said, the, this is the work of God, that you believe in him whom he sent. You want to know the work of the Lord? Believe in me. Church, there is a lot of things that we can be doing that are right But let's not lose sight of the one who makes us right. See? That's the difference. I think we'll run around our entire lives trying to figure out, and most of us, trying to figure out and just do what's right. But are we focused on the one, the only one, who can make us right? That's what this text is driving We exist in a context that countless people, I think, are so close, but not in. You're close, but you're not in. The only thing that makes us righteous is Jesus. The only thing that we're called to primarily is to submit ourselves fully and wholly and completely to Him. I know that's hard. Because right? this is essentially what happened in the temple. Right? 
You go back to our review quickly where Jesus shows up to the temple and he says, I am asserting my authority right here, right now. What's the response of the religious leaders? Fear? I don't know. That means we're going to lose control, right? That means that I'm not going to be authority. Yeah, that's exactly what's happening. Jesus, as he proclaims his authority, is calling us to submit to that authority. And how beautiful that we just read from 1 John that perfect love casts out all fear. We need not be afraid of submitting our lives to Jesus. We need not be afraid of losing authority and control because he is sovereign and he is good. And he is always working for the good of those who love him. But this is the issue. You're not far from the kingdom of God. Guy's got Jesus, the Lord, the one, standing right in front of him. He doesn't recognize him. Let's not let that be us. Let's not let that be us. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your grace that beckons us to come and lay everything down at the feet of your son, Jesus. Thank you for your word. God, only you can do these things in our heart this morning, God, where we are able to see you and respond to you. Only you. So God, my prayer is is that you would orchestrate response in our hearts this morning. We're all at different places spiritually, I'm sure. Some of us here have been walking with you, God, for decades and some for maybe days and some not at all. We have different struggles, we have different idols, we have different areas where we're living like Jesus is is not better than certain things. There, 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 There are a myriad of different positions in the room, God, but you know in great detail where we are and what response looks like for us. And so, God, I just ask that you would drive right response in our hearts this morning. Where someone has been living and trying to um, satisfy and fulfill and, and, and find purpose and meaning in their life for years, God, on their own, apart from you, would you help them to see the truth that they can never experience joy, peace, satisfaction, fulfillment. They can never experience true life apart from Jesus Christ because he is life itself. Help them to surrender, God. Open their eyes. For those of us who, God, again, we've been walking with you for some time, but we have these areas where my life in this area is not submitted to your authority. It's not submitted to your lordship, God. Allow us to cast down our idols at your feet and trust you this morning. Whatever it is, God, would you drive response in our hearts? We love you, God. Thank you for the truth. Thank you that the truth sets us free. We pray these things in Christ's name. Amen. Thank you for listening to this sermon from Red Tree Church. Visit redtreechurch.com for more information.